You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. You can take a scripture if you have a Bible with you or find one in a chair in front of you or on your phone. Turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our focus will be verse 9. As you are on your way there, a couple things. One is in the bulletin. Brandon didn't forget to mention this, but I just said, well, I will cover that. Uh, You've got a new bright yellow. Can you see you can see it from up here? Bright yellow reading plan for the next year for the Bible, uh, to read through the Bible. Some of you, what is it? It's uh, pink, hot pink, have been on that two-year plan, and maybe you're close to finishing. If you are, congratulations to you. It's been a two-year project. If you are a little behind and you're you're close, but you're back in November, October, or June, wherever, and you say, man, there's a few days left. It's not the new year yet, so take your Christmas break, if you get one of those, and catch up and finish the Bible this year. But if not, and you need a fresh start, they're in your bulletin, and I'll have more in the back for us as we start yellow, start another two years afresh to just read through the Bible together. It's what I use personally, and it's it's great to even just encourage that as a church. You might have your own devotional you're working through, or just want to study a book, don't feel like, boy, there's another obligation. It's not. Just enjoy. But if you need something and a place to go, it's quite helpful and Often I will find where I've been in that reading for that week is helpful for that week. And God does that through his word. So I want to encourage you that way. One other thing is a picture from Malachi. Thank you, Malachi. If Malachi didn't turn in pictures, this would just be silence for two minutes. So I'm thankful, Malachi, for this. This is where we were last week. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And great artwork. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. So thank you again, Malachi, for serving us in this way. I was thinking, we're not in the book of Romans now, but yeah, there could be a book, you know, a a visual book here through there from his artwork. Kids, the rest of you, you are welcome to draw as you hear different things within the sermon. Just turn it in, help me out, put your name on it, and uh, you too might be up here uh, as we begin. But hopefully by now, you've come to 2 Corinthians 8. Our focus is going to be verse 9, but I thought I'd just read a little context around it. And so I'm going to start in verse 1 and then read through verse 12, verse 9 being really our focus here. So God's Word says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Let's pray as we think about God's Word. Lord, we come right now to you once again. And Lord, I'm praying that the, the words and the meditation, Lord, both of our heart and what will come out as I preach, Lord, would be honoring and glorifying to you as we think about verse 9 particularly in this passage and we think about Christ and we think about Christmas today and what this means and has already been shared. We would not have worship without what you have done. We would not have salvation. We would not have riches we would still be in the poverty of our sin. So, Lord, may you just guide each of our hearts, including the preacher, to hear from you, to worship you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this, that you would work by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, here we are. It is Christmas Day, this third and final Sunday in kind of a series. You've got it in the front of your bulletin, God Incarnate. A few weeks ago, I mentioned just reading a chapter this past year in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Again, recommend the book to you. Um, But a chapter on the incarnation. And we began to look at what J.I. Packer called the, the greatest mystery or the supreme mystery. And he said the said this, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, that he took humanity without loss of deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. And so we looked at, we saw in the Old Testament and in the New, the scriptures that speak to the deity of Christ, that Jesus is in fact, he is God. And then we also saw the scriptures that speak to his humanity, that this God indeed came in the flesh, being born of a woman. And this mystery is that Jesus is one person, God the Son, having these two natures, being fully and truly God and fully and truly man. I think we've touched on the implications of these truths for our salvation, but today's passage in particular, as I pointed out, verse 9 helps us to see the incarnation once again, and then it's, it's gracious and God-glorifying result for the salvation of sinners. Verse 9, if you look carefully at it, and I've checked a bunch of versions, I think they're all about the same, you have um, about four phrases separated by commas in your, whatever, I think most whatever version you're using. <coughs> Excuse me. Number one, you've got the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second phrase, number two, that though he was rich. And then number three, yet for your sake he became poor. And finally, number four, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so we're going to just look at these. kind of helps 
It's a helpful outline for us as we look at these four little clauses, little statements of verse 9. And so let's take the first phrase here of verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we're starting in verse 9, and this verse is within a context. And the context here is that of God's grace at work within the churches of, calls them the churches of Macedonia. I think that's places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Macedonia. So God's grace is at work within these churches of Macedonia to give, even from verse 2 says, their extreme poverty for the needs of, and you have to go a few other places, the impoverished or the poor saints in Jerusalem. This is a collection for these saints in Jerusalem, and this church of Macedonia is giving to this. And in verse 6, we learn that Paul has sent Titus to another place, to Corinth, with the goal of completing among them also this act of grace, this work of, of, of giving. The ESV, the study Bible, comments on this grace here that we've seen in the passage. It says, here and throughout 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and then 9, Paul calls the collection an act of grace. It says this, because contributing to the needs of others is made possible by God's undeserved gifts in their lives. So God grants and he gives grace upon grace to undeserving sinners who in turn then we imitate that grace, or at least we're called to imitate that grace and that giving. And so the call to the church in Corinth, participate in this grace. Show genuine love to which Paul, he's held up the churches of of the Macedonians here, these other churches. And so in verse 9, he's going to hold up as well the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. An example above any example. But coming to verse 9, what defines this grace, the word grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? And again, just trying to go in context here of the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul defines this grace, at least even within the verse here, we've got somewhat of a definition that Jesus is, though being rich for your sake, became poor. And this for the good of those who were poor for their own rich richness. We're going we're gonna to look at that in, in a bit. But then if we broaden out the context of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 15 says grace is something experienced. Chapter 4 talks about grace extending to more and more people, and it results in thanksgiving to the glory of God. But perhaps most helpful if you would turn to chapter 12. You're already there. Just turn over a couple pages to chapter 12 and a very familiar verse, verse 9. Here Paul recounts, Okay, I must have been singing way too loud. Sorry. <clears throat> Paul recounts here God's answer to his pleading. So right before 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul's pleading, God, take away this thorn in the flesh, and here's, here's the answer from the Lord. This great passage. You, hopefully this is one place you come time and time again. <clears throat> says this, but, but he said to me, God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Grace seems to be here. Grace is sufficient for you and seems to be, at least in part, defined by the phrase that follows, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm not sure we'd naturally go here for first for a definition of grace. Um, usually, I'm, you know, we're thinking of grace receiving something uh, we don't deserve, maybe a short, short definition, and a good one is undeserved favor. It's just a short way of defining grace. But I think, wouldn't we say that fits as well here in verse uh, 9, even of this, 2 Corinthians 12, that Paul's not strong, he's not valiant, he's weak and troubled. And yet in the midst of this weakness, God's power, the power of Christ, rests upon him. So I'm not here to change any definitions of grace, but I think through verse 9 we could see also grace equals God's power and glory in the midst of our weakness, our undeservedness. And, and what greater weakness do we have than our own sin? And yet as we've been going through the book of Romans, remember where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Romans 3.24, we saw that we are justified by His grace as a gift. And then in Romans 5, once you go there, it's, uh, you can look at that or if you want to hang out in 2 Corinthians 12 but you can, uh, or back to chapter 8. But Romans 5, I just want to read a little bit from to see this grace again that we've already seen in Romans. As you're heading to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And if you're in chapter 5, just go a few verses further where Paul brings us grace to the cross. Look at verse 6 in Romans chapter 5. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's grace. For, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows His love. Maybe you have demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. While we were weak, did you catch it there? Christ died. Grace is God's power and glory in the midst of our weakness to bring us to Himself. In looking up grace in a, in a Bible dictionary, I came across this statement regarding grace in the writings of Paul, and I think it's a helpful summary as Paul looks at this. He says, looking at Paul and what he writes, the Christian life is summed up in the grace of God. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace, undeserved favor, God's power in our weakness. One other note. As we head back, you can head back to 2 Corinthians 8. One other note as you head back there, and just thinking once again on this this grace and then our response to the grace. 
And it's a response of praise. God's riches of grace are praiseworthy. Paul says as much, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, he recounts the loving purpose of God to predestine us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians 1, 6, this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Many of you will have, maybe you've already opened gifts Hopefully, maybe under the tree, some last night, that's when we do ours. Maybe some of you did this morning, some of you, I heard yesterday morning, some of you, they're yet to be opened. Think about what happens, though, in that setting when someone, and it could be any time of the year, someone opens a gift. What happens when that gift is opened? Hopefully, you enjoy the gift, or hopefully the one you gave it to says, this is great, you know, and we all know that this point when they, when they don't. But think of it in terms of, whoa, this is a wonderful gift. You know, what comes next after you've opened that gift? What's the next step? And this is the step you're all with young kids. You're trying to teach your kids the next step. What's the step? Make sure you say, thank you. And we, we've learned, but isn't that it just kind of, as you grow, it comes naturally. Thankfulness and praise, where? To the one who gave you that gift. You might say, Wow. So you open it. You're first like, oh, this is great. And then you look. Thank you so much. And you look at the person and you enjoy it. And you, in a sense, not worship, but you praise. Thank you for this gift. That is, the gift is followed by praise. And so the greatest gift, God's grace in Jesus Christ, the gift of our salvation leads us to praise, to glorify God for what he has given. We say this gift. It's not to focus on the gift. The gift then leads us to say, what? What a gracious God. What a wonderful God. Well, hopefully you're back to verse 9 now. All of this grace does come through this one who would take on flesh in the manger, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Remember John 1.14? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So grace is intimately connected to the one who embodies grace, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we move on to the next phrase of verse 9 back in 2 Corinthians 8, we get another view to defining, kind of demonstrating what this grace looks like, and it's that next phrase, that though he was rich. Though he was rich. John MacArthur sees this statement as a reference to the eternality and preexistence of Christ. It's kind of it's subtle there. It's kind of small, isn't it? I've got, at least in the ESV, five words that though he was rich. But nonetheless, this passage, it tells us of a time before the incarnation, when the word became flesh, when Christ was. To draw on it again, where did we go that one week? John 8.58, where Jesus declares... Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, or I, I am. Son of God is fully God. He has no beginning. His existence stretches, if you can think of it, from eternity and past that to eternity and past that. Hebrews 13.8 puts it this way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. He's the same today and the same forever. He's eternal. And yet, as we've been looking at, there's this moment in time, moment in the fullness of time when God sent 
his son to take on flesh, being born of a woman. And it's that time that we're celebrating today, the incarnation. But just remember, the person of Jesus Christ himself, he simply is. He is the I am. Further on this this little phrase that though he was rich, MacArthur writes on Christ's riches. And I bring it up because I think it's helpful because we may, maybe we just, we just think of riches like money, gold, that kind of thing. Here's what he says of Christ's riches. As the second person of the Trinity, Christ is as rich as God is rich. He owns everything and possesses all power, authority, sovereignty, glory, honor, and majesty. Every category of how we might define richness, strength, power, ownership, glory, it defines the short little phrase, though he was rich. Perhaps you know of some names of, um, I do remember the show, Robin Leach, was it Robin Leach? The Rich and the Famous, Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous. He had the, the English accent. But you know some of the rich and famous. I bring up, we think of Bill Gates, although maybe he's, I think he's probably been surpassed in richness. It, I think it used to, Used to be Elon Musk till he bought Twitter, but you think of Elon Musk. Uh, I think he had his beginnings in PayPal and then Tesla and then SpaceX. I'm a fan of space travel, SpaceX. Uh, and now he owns Twitter. You think of rich people or like athletes you watch in football making millions playing in the field. Even all these rich ones, you put in your own rich character, even all of them, they, they lack entire richness. Nobody owns it all, do they? they? And they like the power to keep it all, hard as they might try. Just consider the contrast here of those rich in the world, maybe the names I mentioned. Here's them, and here's the one who is rich in all things. There's no comparison. Jesus Christ was not, he was not one rich man among many. And his richness is even it's measured in glory. Even in the earthly account of the incarnation, I think this, we see testimony to his glory. A, a star announces his birth. There was no star when Elon Musk was, was born. A star was, was here for this king. And even wise men, they bring gifts to this king. God speaks from heaven when Jesus was baptized by John, saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then there's that Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus transfigured before them. The text says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The disciples got a glimpse of His riches and glory. He is rich infinitely in all ways and yet What's the next phrase say in verse 9? Yet for your sake, he became poor. For all the times I just mentioned, think of the wise men, his baptism, the transfiguration. How many other times do we see his becoming poor, his poverty? He was born in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. There was no sleep number bed. For this infinitely rich one. There was, no, there was no presidential suite in the inn. He was born in a manger. 
He was born in a town. Micah, Grant read from uh, Micah 5 last night. A town the prophet calls too little to be among the clans of Judah in Bethlehem. Jesus was not born into a rich family. He was from, from Nazareth of all places. Remember Nathaniel replying to Philip? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet Jesus willingly laid aside all of his glory to come to this earth and to a people he himself had created. But John tells us that the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You and I, do we begin begin to get a sense and a grasp of the contrast of the riches of Christ being willingly given up to become poor? But though we might see this, we might see poverty in a manger or no room in the inn or a town of Nazareth. Rejection, certainly part of what it means for Jesus to be poor. But I think we would be well to keep in view his ultimate poverty. His ultimately becoming poor. His his substitutionary death on the cross for sinners. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful picture to show us he became poor for your sake. I'd like you to turn there to Isaiah. You can keep your spot, however. Turn to Isaiah 53. I'll start in verse 2. Just a little context. Chapter 52, verse 13, just tells us who is this that we're going to read about in Isaiah 53. Three and it talks about, <clears throat> behold, my servant. Here's a picture of a servant. This is Jesus, often called the suffering servant. It's a fitting title for one who has been made poor. I'm going to start in verse 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I don't want to cough my way through this chapter. But I, wa- I want you to, as I read through here, Um, just put a visual before your eyes of Christ on the cross becoming poor. If you can get that visual, I mean, I know we've got a cross here. You can imagine in your mind the cross of Christ, his Christ on the cross being crucified, this becoming poor for your sake. And then I want you to hear, as I'm going to read verse 2 to the end of the chapter, hear the grace in this passage for weakened sinners like you and me. Here we go, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on display for sinners like you and me one rich beyond all riches who became poor, who suffered on the cross, not for his own sins, he had none, but who suffered the curse and the wrath of God due to us for our sin. We deserve the cross. We deserve eternal punishment for sin. God, he would be, he's entirely just to condemn us to death and a hellish existence forever because we have rebelled against him. But by grace, you have been saved. Grace. Paul's last phrase, if you come back to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it really summarizes what we've just read in Isaiah 53. Let me read the verse in its entirety and then the last phrase. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. Christ, through becoming poor, by his poverty, it is your eternal riches in him. I wonder if we can fathom what this means, to be rich in Christ. Perhaps to be the son of an Elon Musk or Warren Buffett or Queen of England, I guess who's now passed away, right? it has its perks, maybe, Nothing, and Paul would say this, nothing compares to the riches of knowing Christ and dwelling in eternity in God's presence, in perfect righteousness and holiness and peace. Today, you might have 50 cents to your name. That might be all you have left in the bank. But if you have Christ, or if you have nothing in the bank, you are rich beyond this world. It's the truth of this passage. You may be facing immense suffering now, or some of you may not, and you might be later on. If you have Christ, you have the one you need for sufficient grace for your weakness and hardship now and grace to live in His glory, to glorify Him forever in eternity. Your life now may not look, what, look like what you thought it would look like at your current age. 
Or you might not be living where you thought you'd be living at the age where you are. You had dreams of where you would be, what you would be doing, and yet here you are in the specific place and region, wherever we all come from, this is where you are. But if you have Christ, you have all you need. God's timing is perfect. And you can draw upon the riches of Christ to supply what you need to be content in the very place He has you today. You who are in Christ, you are rich. And you're rich indeed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask, as I did last night, do you know the Savior today? Or are you content with just seeking after what the world can only temporarily provide? Do you see your own poverty in sin, your own wages? The wages of sin is death, separation from God. But then do you see this gift in Christ? If so, take the gift. Open it. Look at the salvation. Open it by faith. And so celebrate and glorify and worship the giver of the gift. I want to close with one last passage. And if you just turn the page to chapter 9, it's going to come in verse 6. And it, it seems to just encapsulate a response to this gift of Christ and all of what he has given us. So let me read it. In closing, it says, The point is this, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every, every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. There's the connection again. Generous to thanksgiving. For, verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you, and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So, verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. May we be generous in every way. This is not just a sermon about money. Generous in every way because our God has shown such wonderful generosity to us in Christ. And then may we do as verse 15, give thanks to God for this inexpressible gift. You could even say here this indescribable gift or a supreme mystery. The Word becoming flesh. Christ, rich above all riches, becoming poor so that you, by His poverty, 
might become rich in him. Let's pray. As we open the gift of salvation and think about it again today in your gospel for us undeserving sinners, weak and unable, and yet you, Lord, by your grace, saving us for eternity by faith in you. What a gift. What an anchor we have. What a promise. What peace. What riches. Father, keep us from the draw of this world that says, run after this and you will be happy. Lord, we need things. We need to supply. We need to eat. And yet you even provide those things for us. You're the provider of all things. You know what we need. Lord, may we run after you and be joyful in the riches of Christ, now knowing Christ, and then in eternity. Help us to be encouraged by this grace today. In your name, amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.